The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. All right. Hey, why don't you guys thank Adam one more time? <clears throat> so good. You know, I've, I've been in arenas where Adam is singing to 15,000, and I've been in the green room when it's just he and I, and, um, and Adam is the same in front of thousands as he is in the green room when nobody is watching, and those are the kind of people that we want to put before our church and say, uh, man, we, we want to we be an, a blessing and an honor to his ministry, and so we're so glad that he's here. Hey, if you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 1. We're in a series, by the way. If you're new this morning and haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, we're in a series we're titling Portraits, and we're looking at the grand narrative of Scripture from Genesis 1 and 2 uh, to the end of the book, and we're looking at stories in Scripture, and we want to see the grace of God in every story. You know, we, there, we have a tendency in the church sometimes to know the stories in Scripture, and we know about the Davids, and we know about the Jonas, and we know about the Peters, and sometimes we have a tendency to look at those stories and overlay ourselves as the hero in those stories, yet when we read it from the perspective and the view of Jesus, we see something vastly different. And so what I hope that we will see this morning as we read the story and narrate the story of Moses and the Israelites, we won't see a hero named Moses, but we will see the infinite, unbelievable grace of God. Anybody need the grace of God in your life this morning? And so if you have a Bible, Exodus chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 8. But let me pray for us first. Jesus, you're good to us, and your word is sweet, and it is kind, and I pray that you would lather our souls and soothe our souls with the grace of God this morning. Regardless of our success, regardless of our mess this morning, we all bring a story and a narrative to this table and this service, God, and we believe that the grace of God covers every single one of them. So as we read, as we study, as we listen, as we prepare our hearts, our mind, our mouths, our ears, our feet to move in the direction that you will speak, God, we just ask you humbly and kindly, would you speak to us this morning, not as another religious experience, God, but as an encounter with the living, risen God this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Exodus is the story of God's people. If you were with us last week, we narrated um, the journey of Abraham. Before that, we narrated the story of Adam. And there is a succession here of multiple stories. It's all leading to a specific point. So Adam messed the whole thing up. There's sin, there's disaster, there's destruction in our world because of one man. His name is Adam, and we continue the, the path, and we continue the journey that Adam set for all of us. And God begins to set the journey straight. He begins to redeem the mess with a man named Abraham. He makes a promise to Abraham that he's going to make his name great, that he's going to give his descendants a nation, and that his descendants in that nation will be a blessing to the entire world. Now, this morning, we're multiple generations removed from Abraham, and we're in the story of Moses. Moses is a great-great-grandson of Abraham. And when we look at the story of the Exodus, we see God's people who we've, by the way, we've skipped over the story of Jacob and Joseph and his 11 brothers. But if you know that story, it plays into this, but I'll try to narrate it real quickly when we get into the scripture. But we're into Moses, and it's the story of God's people who are in captivity. And they're in bondage, and they're in slavery in Egypt. 
And as they're in slavery in Egypt, God looks at their situation. He looks at their scenario. He hears the cry of his people. And he says to his people, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to free you. I'm going to deliver you from your current scenario and your situation. And it's very instructive this morning. In fact, if you read through the entire book of Exodus, I wish I, wish I could preach an entire series on the book of Exodus. It's so, so good. Because in one book, we really get a big picture perspective of what all of Scripture is like. And what we find when we read the book of Exodus is what we, what we find when we understand the grand narrative of Scripture is that Scripture describes humanity as a people who are captive. And we don't like that idea, especially in our Western culture, because we like the idea of creating and manifesting our own journey and our own futures and our own stories by our own strength and our own will and being anything we want to be because of who we are and how strong we are. And so the idea of being captive to something doesn't sit well with most of us. Yet when we read the narrative of Scripture, we find out that Scripture describes humanity as a people who are captive to something. And Scripture calls that sin. And it hinders, and it disables, and it keeps us from the people who God wants us to be. And so the narrative of Exodus is that God delivers the people from that disabling journey. So let's read with me this morning, starting in Exodus 1. By the way, I'm going to go to Exodus 1, then Exodus 5, and then I'm going to Exodus 6, and then we're going to finish um, um, this afternoon at about 4. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, and I'm going to go all the way to the end of Exodus. It's going to be really good. I'm going to hustle through it, but I promise you, I'm, really, I'm so excited to preach this message this morning because I really believe that there is something significant for many of you in this room today, all right? Don't dismiss this morning as another religious experience, as just an hour in church, as a checklist on the box of religiosity. God has something to say to you today. Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 8, this is what it said. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing. Again, we skipped over the story of Jacob, his sons, his 12 sons. One of them was Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his 11 brothers. Joseph rose to power in Egypt. He was the second man in charge. And because of Joseph's story and his narrative, God preserved the line of Israel. And, and a people would begin to form because of Joseph. Now a new king comes, a new king comes, and that king doesn't know Joseph, and he doesn't care about Joseph, and he came to power in Egypt. Verse 8, verse 9, this is what he says, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. One version of the Bible says they are more, more and mightier than we. Verse 10, come, he's talking to his people and his cabinet and his leaders, come, we must deal shrewdly with them. Or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. Verse 11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built a couple cities as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Now, the story is that the people of God are embedded in this country and they're in servitude to uh, a country and a people who are not their own and they're serving this particular king and Pharaoh. And so, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, verse 12, and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, verse 13, and they worked them ruthlessly, verse 14. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor 
in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields and all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. When I read this passage, it reminds me, because it really is the grand narrative of Scripture, it reminds me of the enemy of God. We know him as Satan. It reminds me of Satan's tactics and his strategy in all of our lives. His tactic is to lure us. His tactic is to woo us. By the way, I'm not one of those guys who looks at every scenario and every bad situation in my life and I say, that is Satan's fault. I'm not that guy. But I I, want to be clear this morning. Theologically, we believe there is an enemy. We believe there is someone opposed to God. He's not without. He's not um, above God's sovereignty. He's not above God's power and his ability. He operates under that ability, but he is active and he is living and he works to oppose the kingdom of God. When I read the story of the Egyptians, when I read the story of the Egyptians and the king and the Pharaoh who tried to keep the people of God busy, when he, when he, when he kept them working ruthlessly and, and put them under harsh labor, it reminds me of the tactics of Satan because Satan knows when the people of God are free to love Jesus, unhindered, without cause, he knows that his kingdom is threatened. He knows that his kingdom has uh, an enemy that's also trying to oppose him. And he knows if, if there is a life that's uninterrupted with sin, his kingdom can't rule. Jesus wins. Jesus gets the honor. And Satan's plot is destroyed. Why? Because he's jealous for his own kingdom. And he will go to great lengths to tempt you and to snag you and to snare you and to woo you into his plan. Now, I lived uh, in Atlanta, Georgia for nine years, and, and uh, in Atlanta, we, have, we had a, 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 a nice house there, and, and at some point after moving into the house, there was this noise in our attic above our master bedroom, and I'm not good with noises, I'm not good with animals, um, I'm not good with, uh, and especially my wife, and some of you women can, you're like, oh my gosh, um, there's something in the attic, and so... I figure out that what's in my attic are flying squirrels. And um, I, this may sound harsh, but, um, but, but, but I'm, I'm not a fan of flying squirrels in my attic, all right? And so I'm listening to all these noises, and in my mind I'm drawing all these conclusions. They're procreating and creating more flying squirrels in my attic, and they're running around while I'm trying to sleep. And so I had this idea. I'm going to put a rat trap in the attic, and I'm going to catch me some flying squirrels. Now, some of you are horrified that the pastor would kill flying squirrels, but let me say to you, God gave me dominion over the animals. And in my kingdom, flying squirrels don't go over well, all right? And so I put a rat trap in my attic, and the next morning at 5 a.m., I hear this snap. I know, that seems harsh. But, and so, like, I heard this sound, and, and I kind of, like, it was loud enough at 5 a.m. to wake me up. And I, and I realized what it was, and I kind of opened my eyes. <laughs> and I said, yes. Yes. And I thought, Awesome. No more flying squirrels in my attic, right? Well, it continued. It kept on. So I find out, I do some research that squirrels love peanut butter. So I'm like, I know your strategy. I know your weakness. I know where, where you will, where you're dumb. And so I'm going to lather this rat trap up with peanut butter. And I put like two or three rat traps all over my, my attic. And so the next night, wham! And I wake up and I'm like, yes, yes. 
And so this continues over a pattern of time. And, and I know some of you are like, oh my gosh, the pastor's killing squirrels in his attic. But listen to, you, to me. I want a squirrel-free kingdom. They want to enjoy the warmth of my attic and create their own little kingdom. But you know what? I know what they like, and I know they're dumb enough to keep hitting the peanut butter, so I'll keep setting traps and eliminating squirrels because why? It's my kingdom, and I make the rules. (laughs) And I want a squirrel-free kingdom. And I'll go out of my way to eliminate the threat of flying squirrels infringing on my kingdom. It's just like Pharaoh taking the people of God and he traps them in slavery, but actually Pharaoh is a minion for Satan. And, but, but, but what we know from Scripture is that Satan is an insecure weasel. He's a liar. And, and, but, but, the, but the issue with us is, is that we believe the lie. What do you mean, how, how is Satan lying to us? Because here's, here's what we think. We, we think that sin and, and these things that involve, and so let, let me just get specific. Let me just talk, not stop talking generally. Let, let me talk very specific this morning. Can we be real in church? This is a real church. We don't hide our issues. We don't hide our problems. The pastor's got his issues. Everybody's got their issues. Let's just talk real this morning. Your pornography, your gossip, your lying, your cheating, those things that we bring to the table, we have this perception that Satan wants to make us bad. And we, we weigh the scales. Like today I was better than I was yesterday. And if this week I'm good and last week I'm bad, somehow I weigh them out and God will look down on me as the great accountant and even out the scales. But the reality is Satan doesn't want to make you bad. Sin doesn't want to make you bad. Like, like, like insert your favorite entertainer who's okay with life being bad. And like, like if they think it's bad, then what's wrong with my sin breathing a little, right? But but here's the issue. We believe the lie because Satan doesn't want to make us bad. He wants to kill you. How do I know that? John 10, 10 says the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so in some way, we find ourselves in this position, in this circumstance of spiritual slavery. It's the story of Exodus. The people of God have found themselves in servitude to Pharaoh and the king of Egypt. Yet really what the book of Exodus is about and what it foreshadows and what it tells us is that we are the people who are enslaved to the king. But the king is not Pharaoh. The king who is trying to snare us is Satan with his lies and we believe his lies. And so what happens is the, the story progresses and, and God sees their situation and their scenario And God in his kindness and his grace, by the way, this is a series on grace. God in his kindness and in his grace, he looks down on the people and he finds a man whose name is Moses. By the way, I wish I could just preach a series on Moses. Moses killed the Hebrew. Moses had anger issues. Moses had all kinds of issues in his life. Yet God in his grace looked down on a man and he said, I'm going to choose you and use you to bring my people from a place of servitude to the place that I promised your great, 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 great grandfather way back when, Abraham. And I'm going to use you to take them to the place where I want to go. So the story progresses. And Abraham, I mean, God approaches Moses and he says, Moses, you're you're my mouthpiece. Moses, you're going to speak for me, Moses, and you're going to talk on my behalf, both to the people of God as well as to Pharaoh, and I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, and I want you to be my mouthpiece to say to him, 
the God of the Hebrews is about to let us go. You know the passage? Let my people go. There's a, there's a kid's story. I wish I could sing it for you, but I'm not, I'm not like Adam. But let my people go. So the story progresses, and Moses goes to the king of Egypt, and he says, God, the God of the Hebrews is about to let us go, and this is what happens. In Exodus chapter 5, starting in verse 4, if you don't have a Bible, we've got it on the screens. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said in verse 5, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. Verse 6, that same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and the overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply. This is, this is what Pharaoh is saying to the slave drivers. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. Verse 8, but require them to make the same number of bricks as for, before. In other words, make it harder to do what we've asked them to do. Verse 8, but don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Moses made a simple request. Let us go into the wilderness for several days and offer a sacrifice to our God. Verse 9. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and get this. And pay no attention to lies. You know the thought of abandoning spiritual slavery in your life this morning? The, the thought of abandoning spiritual slavery in your life this morning is so dangerous. Not only, it's dangerous to you and those around you because in the moment when you recognize where you are spiritually and where you need to be, that is the moment when Satan begins to tighten his hands around your neck. That's the moment when Satan realizes that his kingdom is threatened because he is wise. And so when we look at the story of the people of God and Pharaoh tightens his hands around their neck, he says, no longer give them the people straw to make brick, gather for themselves, but do not reduce the quota. Listen to me. When the Israelites seek God for relief, Pharaoh tightens the noose around their neck and threatens them if they try to leave. Their work increases, but now they have to do more with less. But I find verse 9 in chapter 5 interesting. Make the work harder for the people so that, they work, so that they keep working. And here it is. And pay no attention to lies. Do you know, and you may know this to be true, when sin's addiction grows in your life, when like it, it becomes all-consuming in your life, God's soothing relief for us seems bitter. Like when I'm entrapped in whatever I'm in and, and there's like this, this picture of light at the end of the tunnel and God making a way, sometimes the relief that God brings to us, it seems bitter to us. It can become so severe, listen to me, that we begin to ignore God. Pharaoh says, Pharaoh says so that they would not begin to believe lies. Isn't that exactly what happened in the garden with Adam? I mean, with Eve, when the serpent came to Eve and she said, did God really say this? In other words, he's insinuating that, that God was a liar and, and he didn't really mean what he said. The story progresses, Exodus chapter 6, verse 9. And so God tells Moses, go to the people of God and tell them this is what's about to happen. I'm going to release you. Moses reported this, verse 9, to the Israelites, and listen to this, but they did not listen because of their discouragement and harsh labor. 
Moses tells him, God said to me, I'm going to free you and I'm going to take you to the land that I promised with Abraham. But when Moses speaks to the people, they're so exhausted from their labor and their fear of escaping because they think that if, if they come out from under the oppression and the slavery and the servitude, they think doing so would cause it to go deeper. This is, this is a couple other versions of the Bible. This is how they describe this verse, verse 9. Um, but they didn't listen to Moses because of their complete exhaustion and hard labor. The ESV version says because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. The message says they were, uh, they were beaten down in spirit by the harsh slave conditions. The NIV we just read says because of their discouragement and hard labor. The NASV says because of their despondency and cruel bondage. The New Living Translation says they have become too discouraged by the brutality of their Slavery. The people of God are described as helpless, right? Uh, hopeless, they're miserable, they're depressed, and their slavery was so brutal. But their response to hope and to help was to ignore it. <laughs> Satan doesn't want to make you bad this morning. He wants to kill you. He wants to so weaken and deplete who you are, that you are completely and utterly tiresome and useless to bring honor to Jesus in your life. That doesn't go over well. This is not a, a good, a fun message to preach because we're like, no, 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 but I'm autonomous and I'm strong and nothing holds me back and I can do whatever I want to do and there's nothing that will press me down. But that's the reality of Scripture. When Satan tightens his hands around our neck, he wants to do so to weaken you and to completely deplete you so you, that you are useless to honor Jesus in your life. The process is this. Our nature is bent towards sin. Our nature is bent towards Towards sin, and if we don't battle with it, it, it takes over and it completely consumes you. We had a meeting this week talking about counseling in our church, and it was so good to hear a, a very wise man in our church talk about how sometimes when people are, are just stuck in the middle of it, sometimes it can take 10 years for somebody to finally realize this is the moment that I now need help. That's what Satan can do. That's how we can be so confused and addiction to pornography, the internet, alcohol. By the way, it's not a pleasurable experience. We think it's pleasurable, but, but, but in reality, it has the chains and the noose around our neck so that we, we struggle and it strangles the life out of us. You can never give up with the battle of sin. You can never give up in the battle of sin. And, and the reality here this morning is that, is that the grace of God is, is always available and it's, and it's, it's usable, but, but the reality is we must battle with our sin before we lose the war. I had an intern in my church several years ago that we launched out to his first youth ministry position. And he went to a church and not long after he got there, the children's minister at that church was arrested and I remember the day that um, they had the broadcast, the day after he was arrested. I remember watching online. He was arrested for molesting what they thought at the time. I don't know what the end, has, the end result has been, but possibly more than 34 children. Um, he had pornography found on his computer at home. Eventually, he admitted to pornography being on his computer at work. 31 counts of sodomy, 3 counts of sexual abuse of a child under 12, charged with child pornography. 
the court documents, I, I remember just reading through the court documents that, that the police posted online, and I, and I wrote down this statement. The court documents say that the incidents were so many that the, the accused advised he could not remember. The court documents go on to say that the affiant states that after waiving his Miranda rights, he stated that he was addicted to pornography and that he has downloaded images of nude young males onto his church-issued computer. Uh, now, that's personal to some of you guys in this room this morning. And there may be some of you in this room that this is not your struggle, but can I say to you, sin doesn't just affect you if it's your struggle. It affects people around you. It affects those who are in your path. And I want to remind you this morning that Satan doesn't want to make you bad. He wants to kill you. He wants to so disable your life that bringing honor to Jesus, you seem useless. But can I say this to you also this morning? We would have a terrible, terrible father (laughs) if that's where the story ended. Like nobody goes to the box office to watch those movies, right? Like nobody goes to the box office to see the terrible ending movie. People go to the box office to see the happy ending. The record of Scripture is that the grace of God where Satan wants to kill you, God wants to deliver you, and the grace of God always offers a way out. <laughs> That's the, that's, that's the complete narrative of Scripture because we could just come in this morning and, 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 and beat each other over the head with our sin and say, get it better and get it right and get stronger, which our response is, is I'm autonomous and I can live my life however I want to and I'm strong and nothing will oppress me. Yet when we finally realize that something has oppressed us in sin, we have the same response to how to get out. I'm going to pull myself up by the bootstraps. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to be stronger. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Where Satan wants to kill you. I want to deliver you. And the grace of God will always offer a way out. That's the good, good father that we have. Do you think a father would lead you to a place of harm and just leave you there and never offer a way out? My, my kid, we had this conversation recently. My son, I don't forget which one it was, Deacon or Eden, they were afraid of something. And I said, do you really think that dad is going to allow you to walk into the path of something harming you? Do you think God's going to, you think I'm going to allow you to do that and not rescue you from that situation? (laughs) That's the story of God. That's the grace of God. And he always allows an opportunity for freedom. So the end of the story is this. The end of the the story progresses. God leads his people out of Egypt. Moses is the man that would point them to the promised land. And we see Moses. And in sort of a way, we look at Moses as the hero. But the reality is Moses is a type. He's the one that points us to a further reality of Jesus being the hero who will eventually deliver us. So what happens is there's the 10 plagues. You know it, verse chapter 7 all the way through chapter 11. And God brings on the plagues on the Pharaoh so his people can go. You remember the plagues, right? The locusts, the cattle die, the Nile turns red. There's 10 of them. You can read them in chapter 7 through 11. And so God frees his people. And then when he frees his people, you remember the story. They come to the Red Sea. You remember the story as a kid as a Red Sea? They're at the Red Sea. They can't go to the left. They can't go to the right. And Pharaoh and all of his army, according to Exodus chapter 14, are all along the horizon. And the people of God are standing 
on the shore of the Red Sea and they hear this noise, they turn around and their worst nightmare is standing behind them. God, where do we go? We can't go to the left. We can't go to the right. And we certainly can't go through the middle in the Red Sea. You know what God did, don't you? You know what God did, don't you? God parted the Red Sea. The people of God marched through and they get all the way to the other side. Pharaoh and his army chases after them. God brings the waters back down and Pharaoh and all of his army die. God created deliverance. God freed them from their situation. That would be a great story. Matt, that's amazing. Let's pray, go to dinner, and let's have fun and praise Jesus. But that's not where it stops because Exodus chapter 15, what happens is after they get out of the Red Sea, this is awesome. When they get out of the Red Sea, three days later, they're walking on the other side of the river and it says for three days they're thirsty and there is no water. They come to a a place called Marah. Marah means bitter. What's happening is that the water in Marah is bitter and they can't drink it. So God tells Moses to take a, a tree, throw it into the river, the bitter water becomes sweet and the people of God have water to drink. See, the, the, the Old Testament is not just an isolated incident or, or, or scenario or story because the New Testament says in John chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, Jesus said to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He's talking about this, the water that's directly, like you can see it. This water right here, he's talking to the girl. This water, if you drink this water, you're gonna be thirsty. You need another drink tonight. You're gonna need another drink tomorrow. But then what he says was, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become a spring of life and water welling up to eternal life. They're thirsty and they're grumbling. God, we have no water. God provides the water. How are we gonna get out of Egypt? God parts the Red Sea. They move on from from Marah and now they're hungry. They have no food. God, you've led us into this wilderness. You've led us to this place where we're away from all of civilization. God, how are we gonna have food? And God tells Moses in Exodus chapter uh, 16, he says to them, um, it's, and by the way, this is the constant story of the people of God. They're constantly grumbling. And I gotta be honest, man. Several thousand years later, I'm reading the story of the Israelites and God continues to provide. I'm like, why are you grumbling? God's gonna provide, right? And so sometimes we see their grumbling as a negative thing, but if we just flip our perspective just for a moment, their grumbling is actually a place of weakness and dependence on God. You know what he says in chapter 16 of Exodus? He says at night, he says at night when you go to bed, he says at night when you go to bed, Chapter 16, verse 6, in the evening, you will know that the Lord, the evening represents God's provision. The evening represents his care for all of our lives. The abundance of life and those abundance of life moments, we know that God will provide. Then in verse 7, it flips it around. It says, when you wake up in the morning, you remember what God instructed them to do. There will be bread on the ground. They called it manna. Actually, it's manu. What means, what is it? God instructed them every single morning, I want you to pick up enough bread just for today. Don't pick up enough bread for tomorrow except on Friday. Pick up enough bread on Friday for two days. Every day, pick up enough bread just for today. Tomorrow morning, it's going to disappear. Tonight it's going to disappear, but in the morning, pick up enough bread just for today. You know what the morning represents? The evening represents his provision, represents his abundance towards us in his life. In the morning, it represents our dependence on Jesus. (laughs) Makes a way through the Red Sea. Tree goes into the water. Bitter water becomes sweet. There is no food. Pick it up in the morning. At night, you're reminded that I made provision for you. The New Testament says, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. John chapter six, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses. It's not just a story about a people who were in bondage to slavery. It's our story. It's our story. 
It was not Moses that, that, that gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gave you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. He's talking about Jesus and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, you know it, say it with me. I am the bread of Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. God, we're on the Red Sea. There is no way. God parts the waters. God, there is no water. Throw the tree in the water. The bitter water becomes sweet. God, there is no food. In the morning, pick up enough for this day. Tomorrow morning, you'll pick up enough again for the next day. (laughs) The story goes on. In chapter 17, they come to another place. And there is no water again. They're grumbling again. It's a sign of their weakness and dependence on God. You know what? God tells Moses. He says, Moses, strike the rock. You strike the rock, you'll have water. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, talking about the Red Sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, Exodus chapter 16, and all drank the same spiritual drink, Exodus chapter 17, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. <laughs> God, we're at the Red Sea. I'm going to make a way. God, there is no water. Throw the tree in the water. God, I have no food. Pick it up in the morning. God, there's no water again. Strike the rock. It doesn't stop. They're at battle. They're in battle. Um, um, Moses' mentee is down in the plains fighting with the Amalekites. They shouldn't win this battle. They shouldn't win the battle. They should be overcome. They don't have enough people. There's no way they should win the battle. Moses says, God, what do we do? Moses says, go up on the hill. Go up on the mountain, Moses. And Moses, what I want you to do is I want you to stretch your arms out. (laughs) Moses, stretch your arms out. There's a man on your right and there's a man on the left who are supporting you as you stretch your arms out. Moses, when you let your arms drop, the Amalekites will overtake you. Moses, when your arms are lifted. (laughs) Moses, when your arms are lifted, you will win the battle. Moses' arms are literally in cruciform. Moses' arms are in cruciform It's so obvious, I really don't need to tell you. But God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died on a cross and cruciform for, let's make it personal, you. Moral of the story, the grace of God always makes a way out. The moral of the story is, regardless of where you are, you're beaten down, you're tired, you're weakened, you're depleted, you can't fight anymore, you're in the depths of sin and life. The grace of God says to you, I will always make a way out. Now where it becomes dangerous is if we see the way out that God has made for us. We say, no thank you, God. I'm autonomous. I'm strong, I can pull myself out. You know what that gets you? More broken relationships, more sin, 
more sorrow, more defeat, more depletion, no strength. You feel like you can't honor Jesus? <laughs> the story of the people of God is a story that we have today. The grace of God always offers a way out. Don't reject it today. Would you bow your head? I don't know how you came into this room this morning. I, I have a feeling in a room like this, I have a feeling in a room like this that there are some of us who have been wrestling with many things. Some of us may not be wrestling with something we've created of our own, but we're wrestling with something somebody else in our life has created. By the way, that's exactly what sin will do to us. Don't think that your gossiping is isolated only to you and elevates you and depletes others. Your gossiping affects others. People, by the way, see through that. And eventually it's gonna lead you to a place of isolation. Keep gossiping. You're gonna find yourself in a place where you need the grace of God more than you do today. Wherever you are today, Jesus is looking at you saying, there is a way out. I've provided it through my son on the cross. I don't mean to say this morning that life isn't hard and there aren't difficulties and people won't get sick and somebody's not going to die and you're gonna go through financial trouble and maybe even declare bankruptcy and not have a place to live for a while and sleep on somebody else's couch. I'm not saying life doesn't get hard. I'm saying in the moments of life where you willfully turn your head and your face to God, away from God, I'm saying in those moments, those are the moments where we are, are dangerously, dangerously walking away from the grace of God. Yet in the moment, he continues to call out to you, just like he did to Adam. Adam, one more thing. Abraham, no, 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 I promise you I'm going to make good on my promise. Moses, I know you may not believe me in the moment, and you're probably wondering why I would even choose you in the first place, but Moma, Moses, there is a way. If you came this morning and you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus, we always want to invite you into that we don't want to escape uh, an opportunity to say Jesus is good and he died for your sin and he wants you to turn from your sin and walk with him the rest of the days of your life. And maybe that's you this morning. You've never had a relationship with God. You've seen it as a list of rules and some sort of religiosity and religious experience that God is beckoning your heart and he's wooing you as, even as Satan has wooed you in sin. Jesus is wooing you by his grace and he's saying to you today, would you trust your life to me? Let me forgive you of your sin. There's grace at the end of the tunnel. Walk with me the rest of the days of your life. If that's your story this morning, we're not going to embarrass you, make you say anything you don't want to say, do anything you don't want to do this morning. We simply want you to acknowledge that. Why do you want to do that? Why do you want me to do that, Pastor Matt? Because we believe that the believing life is not a solo journey. It's a community journey. I'm going to give you a Bible to begin to walk with Jesus. You don't want to do it in anonymity. That's where sin hides, and that's exactly where Satan wants you to be. It's your desire to trust Christ this morning. Would you do me a favor? We don't typically do this. It's your desire to trust Christ this morning for salvation. There's nobody looking around. Everybody's got their head bowed, their eyes closed. If that's your desire this morning, could you do me a favor? I'm not going to make you stand on the stage or anything weird that you don't want to do. If it's your desire to trust Christ this morning, nobody looking around, would you just raise your hand? I can see it. I'm the only one. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Anybody else in this room? Praise God. I'm not talking about I'm not talking about returning to Jesus, like, like renewing my... I'm talking about trusting Jesus for salvation today. Anybody else? Praise God. 
If that's you this morning, you raised your hand. Can I ask you to do something after the service? There's a table called the Connect Table. We'd like for you to stop by there and just acknowledge to one of our two volunteers, hey, I I trusted Jesus today. They're gonna say, praise God, that's the best thing that's ever happened. Or take some info from you. We'll follow up with you and say, we wanna help you begin this journey with Jesus. Now let me close out with the second part of this invitation. You're wrestling. You've been impacted by somebody else's sin. It's your own sin that's driving you deeper and deeper and deeper and away from God as you sense it to be, although God has never moved, he's right there, and you need to experience the grace of God freeing you today. Can I make a promise to you? It's not easy. And I'm not promising you that today there won't be a struggle tomorrow. You gotta fight with it, you gotta battle with it. That's the record of scripture. It's not just some wand that Jesus waves over our life and says, okay, your problems are all gone now that you've acknowledged me. There's a fight and there's a battle every single day. But Jesus is staring you in the eyes this morning and he's saying, my grace is sufficient. That's you this morning as we sing a a song. Maybe you can make your chair your altar. Cry out, pour your heart out to God. Express who you are and where you are and allow the grace of God to wash over you for God to begin to allow to speak to you and maybe this morning you need to begin a journey of walking with someone else to hold you accountable for what is going on in your life. I'm gonna pray for us. Then we're gonna stand and sing one last song. Jesus, you're a good father. God, you just don't leave us in the desert. You don't just leave us in the wilderness. You just don't leave us depleted and defeated and exhausted from sin. You make a way. That's the record of scripture. And you, God, because of that, you are a good, good father. Jesus, as we sing, may our anthem be how good you are to us in this moment. God, in this room, there's people who need you, need to be freed from some things. God, would you, by the grace, by the grace that you offer so freely, God, would you begin to allow them to acknowledge that they need that grace and begin a process of healing their life. Jesus, we love you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.